Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. He was just a boy with a silver spoon standing in front of a girl from Baltimore asking her to love him. The end. Let's talk about Wallace Simpson. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1937, Margaret Mitchell won the Pulitzer Prize for her first and only novel, Gone with the Wind. The first successful flying car, Waldo Waterman's Aerobile, took its first successful flight. But that year, the Hindenburg disaster and Amelia Earhart's disappearance occurred. The World's Fair was held in Paris. The Lincoln Tunnel connecting New Jersey to Manhattan and the Golden Gate Bridge opened. On May 12th, the spare British royal, King George VI, had his coronation. And on June 3rd of 1937, the former British king who had abdicated that throne married the woman he loves, American Wallace Simpson. And the greatest or messiest love story of the world takes a permanent place in history. Bessie Wallace Warfield was born on June 19, 1896, the first and only child of Tico Wallace Warfield and his wife, Alice Montague Warfield. Wallace was born in a small house named Square Cottage in the then summer resort town of Blue Ridge Summit, Pennsylvania. Papa, who was always known as T. Wallace, was the youngest son of an extremely wealthy man who had been a member of the Maryland State Legislature. His family was an old, respectable one in this country dating from 1662 and was generally full of the sort of prominent men who added glory to the name and money to the safe, I guess, but um, (laughs) not a lot of joy and not a lot of humor. You know, this family works hard and we achieve and be triangular and carry a big stick, kind of. Um, and then poor old T. Wallace had a lot to live up to. You know those, <laughs> you know those kids whose older siblings were, you know, prom king, captain of the football team, student council, straight A's. Uh, T. Wallace is handsome and all, but not the star his brothers had been. And I really feel quite sorry for him. When he was diagnosed with quote consumption, his oldest brother just pulled him out of school and got him a random job as a lowly clerk in some uncle's financial office. Not that there was an effective treatment for what we know now is tuberculosis other than a change of climate, but he did not even get that. What does he have? We'll just just put him someplace. What a loser, kind of, you know? What a a sympathetic bunch that is. Yeah, well, he was the baby. So he was not the one that was given a lot of opportunities like the older brothers might have because they were healthier. He, his whole life was not a very healthy child. He was kind of frail. So this was probably just another thing, like you just said. Then, Although Tickle, that's a cool name, right? No, it reminds me of Treacle or oh. Tinkle. Oh, okay. So no longer a cool name. Well, uh, let's see. Let's talk about Mama a second. Mama's family, the Montagues, I love that name at least, uh-huh. <laughs> was even older in America, if you can believe that. So they got a land grant from the King of England in 1621. So not nobody's either. That's what I'm saying. I assure you this will come up later. The Montagues kept their name as old family, kind of all their history. And it seems like most of their good humor, thank goodness, but they just hadn't hung onto any of their money. 
which is a bummer. Uh, yeah. One book I read referred to them as Southern eccentrics. So I like the idea of that. I'm always on board for an eccentric. Well, they were living in the, you know, the ancestral homes and these houses were like falling apart and they were still having parties. In some parts of the Old South, it's super chic not to have your house painted. I want to say on the coast, if your house stays unpainted, it's actually chicer than if you try to fancy it up every other year with a coat of paint because the sea is just going to rip it right off. And if you feel like that's unfortunate, evidently you're nouveau. I don't know. (laughs) And you like to pay to have your house painted. Well, Alice, thank goodness, had the best of everybody. She was beautiful and blonde and always laughing. She was known as a witty and clever girl uh, who nonetheless was attractive to the men. <laughs> Let's point to that. Witty and clever, but nonetheless attractive. Hmm. And I should say, by the way, that Mama was exactly the same age as Emily Post and in the same city. I know. I kept trying to look for ways that they might have crossed paths somehow, and they probably did, but um, I didn't find any. Did you? Well, no, but I think Emily Post ran a little higher. They probably ended up at the same uh, events, but I doubt they would have been friends or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I imagine them passing at a punch bowl. Yeah. Now, so how these two, Alice and T. Wallace, met, we do not know. A dance, somebody's dinner party, I don't know. But it was quick attraction, followed quickly by true love, followed by objections from both families. Son, those Montagues are frivolous and they have no money. A younger son has no business marrying a poor woman for love. That's not how it's supposed to go. And then, of course, her family, Alice, dear, you could do so much better than this clerk who has consumption and is sure to die and leave you destitute. And, you know, that last sentence actually makes a lot of sense to me. It does. Well, even his family knew that, you know, he wasn't going to live much longer. And that was actually one of their um, complaints, too, is because he was taking on a wife, possibly a family, and that's going to be a responsibility. Who's going to take care of them? Pretty realistic. And even though the families were both so opposed, they were kind of on the same page. And so amid such family objections that it took place in the preacher's drawing room instead of in his church, Alice and T. Wallace were married quietly with none of their relatives present and no announcement of what was, after all, a society wedding in the newspapers. Nothing. And honestly, they might not have even told their families about the wedding beforehand at all. Like, what good could come of that? Just prevention, which is not what they wanted. Seven months later, we can count, right? Seven months later, while they were staying at a resort up in the mountains, Alice gave birth to a baby girl. So a pre-honeymoon baby, which obviously we don't care so much about today. Seriously, we don't. But the Victorians would have had strong opinions about, except for the fact, this is okay, this is curious to me. Neither Papa nor Mama had made any arrangements about anything. So there's no doctor on call. There's no local woman it's ready to drop by with hot water and they're far from home. And now they had gone up to um, the mountains for Teagle's health because the city in the summer is just really bad for people with, you know, congestion problems and <laughs> tuberculosis. So uh, I think they were just concentrating on, you know, being a couple away from their families, trying to get him healthy. And like you said, they didn't line up any care at all. So little Bessie Wallace Warfield could have been just premature or both things. I mean, who cares? Who cares? You say us too, except for it seems to be a thing canvassed by every biographer you encounter, like for a whole chapter worth of things. Well, and anyway, if you're born when your parents are married, aren't you, quote, saved from being illegitimate? Anyway? Yeah, but that doesn't stop people from doing the math. And the baby wasn't even celebrated. There was like no birth announcements in the paper, just like for their wedding. If this person... 
this little baby hadn't grown to be so prominent and people hadn't been poking around and digging around for the least little crumb of whatever, we probably wouldn't have even said any of this because it wouldn't have mattered to anyone, right? Nope. No, no, not at all. Okay, so moving on, moving on. (laughs) By the time the family moved back to Baltimore in the fall, T. Wallace was so sick that it was thought best to never let the baby be in the same room with him. Isn't that grim? It's super grim. He went downhill so very fast. Alice, he said, Alice, please have the baby photographed so I can see her before I go. And she did. And he looked at the pictures for a long time. He's known for a while that... This end was coming and now he can feel it. He knows it's it's here. They're living in this crappy hotel. He knows he's going to leave his wife. He's going to fulfill what the parents said was going to happen. And I mean, that alone had to put him in a really bad place. Well, Bessie Wallace's father, regardless of his feelings on the matter, died two weeks later after the photo session and she was only five months old. So now what? Seems like Mama had burnt some bridges with her own family which is really sad, I think. And anyway, they weren't going to help her now, which is really terrible. Luckily, T. Wallace's mother had a large sense of duty, I guess, and stepped in and invited Alice and Bessie Wallace to live with her in her fancy big house. Not a fancy big mansion house on a rolling lawn, like you're probably thinking. This is Baltimore, so it's a terrace townhouse, sort of like you might see in England, only red brick, uh, right on the street. (laughs) Did I ever gush about how much I love Baltimore? I went there when I was like after college and I just thought I was going to live there at some point in my life for some reason. There was something about the city. You know, lest we forget, again, Baltimore, Maryland is considered the South. Right. In the house, family-wise, were Grandma Warfield and her oldest son, Solomon. Let's call him Uncle Saul because everyone else did. Who yeah. was the, He was the man of the house and the boss of all the money. And he gave his sister-in-law an allowance and also felt free to demand to be shown how she spent it and lecture her about her choices. See how it was? Women were treated as big children who had to be scolded and guided. And there was really not a lot you could do about it if you didn't have the right education to find some other way. Yeah, her options were like nothing. <laughs> right. And you have to remember her personality. She came from this Victorian hippies kind of, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and suddenly she's in this house. Think of the most uh, cram-packed Victorian decor that you can, you know, oriental rugs everywhere, little things that you have to be dusted all the time. You know, it's a very formal house. And that's a clash right there. Her past and her personality with these very strict people. I can't imagine the tension in that house right then. How sad for a laughing, happy person to be in a house where laughing out loud was considered very bad behavior. Mama is having her own troubles. We can be clear on that. But the baby is treated quite well. Fancy clothes, several nurses and nannies. This is a house with a whole staff. I mean, the main nanny had also brought up Bessie Wallace's father and her grandfather. That is old money. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and that's a woman who must do her job very well because she's held it for a very long time. What do they do between generations? I've always wondered about that. Knit? Um... I don't know. Maybe they get lent out to another family. Ooh, timing is everything. I don't know. Well, Grandma was always impressing upon baby Bessie Wallace how important it was to be a lady and a Southern lady and what that meant. Um, not touching your back to a chair back, ten minutes to Grandma. <laughs> Every time I read that, I thought of you and your Grandma. <laughs> Uh, and please, 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 please don't marry a Yankee. She's four years old. What does she know from Yankees? But evidently, whatever a Yankee is, I'm never going to marry one. Yes, yes, ma'am. 
as she got a little bit older, um, grandma's big event of the week was going to do the shopping on Saturdays. Now, it's not like us, you know, with our sneakers and our shopping carts. You know, she dressed for the event. There was gloves and she dressed little Bessie Wallace, too. And they went off together and, you know, grandma would point to the things that she needed and the servants walking behind her would purchase them for her. So she never had to touch anything, but it was a kind of a be seen event because that's what all the matrons did. And Bessie Wallace was a very admired child. She was quite beautiful, giant blue eyes, nicely curled blonde hair, well turned out. Well, when Bessie Wallace was five, her world changed completely. She and Mama moved out of Grandma's house and back to that seedy, cooking, smells in the hallway apartment building where they lived with Papa, where he died when she was a baby. And I, what happened? There's no money. Mama's doing sewing to get a little salary. Gone were the nannies. Gone was the nice house and the calm days and the shopping trips. And um, you can still have the nice dresses until you grow out of them. And good luck to you. Bessie Wallace didn't know this. Of course she didn't. She's five. But old Uncle Saul had begun, how shall I say, an unwanted interest in his sister-in-law. And Mama had felt that the only escape was just to move out. Yeah, it had to be super uncomfortable. Their room is on the same floor as Saul's room. So... They had to go down to use grandma's bathroom and not the one on the floor they were, their rooms were at. But Saul was right there, you know, next door in the hallway and they would pass each other. And, you know, Alice was beautiful and he was never married. He was kind of humorless. He probably didn't attract a lot of women's attention because he didn't try. But here's an easy one. It's easy pickings. She married my brother. She'll marry me. Right. Well, Saul paid her back for her rejection, as he termed it, by randomizing her allowance, passive-aggressive. Some weeks would be purposely shorted, so she could never be secure and pay her bills and never be happy, I guess, is is his goal. Dirtbag. They struggled along like this for about a year until Mama's older sister, Bessie Merriman, which is the Bessie part of Bessie Wallace's name, (laughs) who was a widow, invited them to live with her. Yes. And at this point, I think we need to start referring to, since there is another Bessie in the house, let's start referring to her as Wallace, which is, in fact, what she started to go by. Too many Bessies in the house and too many cows named Bessie, she said. And they're back to stability, at least, if not splendor. You can still see Bessie's house. It's now the University of Baltimore Schaefer Center for Public Policy. You can still study there, but you can't live there. Sorry. (laughs) Um, So Wallace went to a fancy co-ed primary school called Miss O'Donnell's that Uncle Saul was, I guess, guilted into paying for. Hooray. She did have the Warfield name. So that's his family that's being represented. He had to have her go to a good school. Oh, I see. So it was selfish, kind of. Oh, totally. And plus it gave him more control over the over Alice and Wallace. No gifts without strings, right? Mm-mm, not a single one. Well, she was top of the class there. And at 10, she was sent to the prestigious Arundel School for Girls with the Daughters of the Who's Who. Again, a very popular girl who led the class in academics and sports teams. 
She was remembered as being always cheerful, very thoughtful of others. And I think that might be her grandmother's Southern lady emerging. She was always taught to regard others' feelings above her own, how to make small talk. It started early, that education, and uh, only reinforced at her two fancy schools. As she got to be a teenager, much seemed to have been made of her, quote, unfortunate and angular mannish features, by which I guess they mean high cheekbones and a beaky nose, and this criticism follows her through her whole life. But I want you to look at pictures of her. Seriously, I don't know Mm -hmm. where people are getting it. I think she's just beautiful, but maybe I was wondering if she has that print model face that the camera just loves, unlike mine. No angles, and I look like a (laughs) balloon in photos. I don't recall ever thinking she wasn't attractive. It's a weird criticism that I've never understood. The same... Criticism always follows Maria, the third Romanov sister, and I thought she was the prettiest one of the bunch. So I don't know. Maybe I have a different standard of beauty. It doesn't matter. But well, anyway, Alice and Wallace had a brief adventure in a respectable apartment house where Mama tried a catering scheme, but forgot to account for supply costs, just like a child with a lemonade stand. Like she made fabulous food. She charged little prices. And then when the groceries bills came, she's like, oh, and she had to be bailed out of debt by her sister, Bessie. I know. I was like, oh, that was a bad idea. But she was doing, you know, her sewing brought her a few pennies a month and she was very good at it. Every time that Wallace saw an outfit on another girl and asked her mother to make it, she did. And nobody could tell the difference between the expensive store-bought one and the one that Wallace was wearing. So she always looked great. But this Uh thing, this little adventure in cooking got her daughter later tarred with the daughter of a boarding house landlady brush forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, later on, after what would happen with the king, people raked over her past for any little dang thing. You know, illegitimate boarding house. And her mother (laughs) had her drink cow's blood since it was thought to prevent consumption. She was worried she'd go the way of her father. And I am surprised they didn't just call her a vampire. (laughs) I'm just like, oh, you Okay, I'm like so grossed out by the thought. I think they did that on Survivor before. They mixed like blood and milk and they had to drink it. Please don't make me gag right now. (laughs) My people make... um, black sausage out of it well that's cooked and you know there's that in steak right you eat that in steak yeah it's different <laughs> oh well anyway if you drink blood and milk willingly please send us a message <laughs> well anyway mama bought a house at last at last again still there we should just provide a list of addresses um well it was a far cry from anywhere emily post was living it's about let's see i did the math it's about a sixth of the price of emily post's house at this time and wallace thought you know hooray hooray at last it's just me and my mother we're a family we're together in our own house <laughs> oh contraire Poor, poor Wallace. Unbeknownst to her, her mother had been seeing, respectably seeing, this isn't a hole-in-the-corner type of thing, a wealthy man named John Razin, and they were going to get married. Drop the bomb. You know, once her period of mourning was over, she was actually dating, which was another thing that Grandma Anna wasn't really fond of, because (laughs) Grandma Anna wore her widow's weeds her entire life, just like Queen Victoria. After her husband died, that was it. I know, but you can't, I mean, 
Alice needs security. In an era in which women of her class had not been given the means to make their own way, a man, a husband, is pretty much the only career you're going to be able to take after. And freedom, at last, from the war fields. You know, now another guy's the boss of me and not Uncle Saul. Well, Wallace lost her crap. No way. She freaked out. She was slamming doors, running up and down the hall. She was going to run away. She would not go to the wedding. They couldn't drag her there like a total freak out that created this all hands on deck kind of situation to get her to dress up and show up downstairs in the parlor for the ceremony. Like all the lady relatives possible had to come and tap dance and persuade and like, oh, your mother's happiness and blah, blah, blah. But finally they got her downstairs. But Wallace, during the wedding, snuck into the dining room where the wedding cake and the punch was little cucumber sandwiches and the like. And she stared at that cake. Boy, howdy, she stared at it. And it was, and it still is, a custom to bake little good luck charms in a wedding cake, like little Monopoly-sized piece things that you might get in your piece as a fortune-telling thing. So like a heart for new love, a flirtily for prosperity, a little red bean for good luck. I assume not cooked because you could really miss that one. But it's also like um, the baby in a king cake, you know, down in New Orleans. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. Well, I would hope to get an anchor for adventure. But nowadays they tie ribbons to them and they call it a cake pull. So you can just pull them out, I guess, because of choking hazards, you know. (laughs) But um, back then they were just baked in wherever. You couldn't determine with the ribbon where they were. And something came over Wallace, man. And she just ripped that cake apart with her hands, (laughs) looking for all those dang good luck charms. And she was so intent on getting rid of them. (laughs) That she didn't hear everybody come in behind her. And she turned around and her hands are all covered with cake. And there was this moment when anything could have happened. (laughs) She stared at them. They stared at her. And Mr. Razin started to laugh. And he grabbed her up and spun her around. And I guess he'd passed some kind of test. Because Wallace accepted, if not loved, him from then on. Mm -hmm. I love that story. I was reading it. I'm like, you go, Mr. Raz, and I don't care if you're like sipping from a bottle. Well, he had a trust fund. He didn't need to work, so he didn't. You know no. what? That's the dream of us all, right? Like, yeah. Mr. Razin was also able to afford to send Wallace to a prestigious summer camp. So, you know, now that she's on board, there are perks to having this man in the house. She would rode horses. She played tennis. She had afternoon teas and formal Sunday dinners. It kind of sounds like a finishing camp. If there was such a place where they learned manners and how to interact with boys and all that. And she it's a glamp. (laughs) It is a glamp. And I will say she excelled at interacting with boys. Yes, but not in a skeevy, like out of control way. Right. Correct. But she was quite flirtatious. She was very charming, an excellent conversationalist. Um, And going to these camps just kind of gave her confidence in those abilities that she had because she was getting reactions. Yeah. And I just think it's telling that, yes, everyone can dig up dirt, dig up dirt on her. But everyone approached says that during school, Wallace was charming. Everyone loved her. She took care of people. She was generous with her things. She was generous with her time. She was a nice person. So. Mm -hmm. So at 15, Wallace was sent to the most fashionable finishing school around, a boarding school called Old Fields, which is still operating today. Yeah, tuition room and board for a year is uh, $56,400, and it's about 20 miles outside of Baltimore. 
So if you want to send your girls to a very nice finishing school, there's one. It's very old. Well, she again was a good student, reasonably popular with the other students, especially one Mary Kirk, the daughter of a silversmithing magnate, uh, was a lifelong friend. We'll see her later. Just make a note of the name Mary (laughs) Kirk. And like a later subject, Zelda Fitzgerald, she was adept at bending the rules. She would sneak out and in undetected to meet boys, though it must be said she did not develop a promiscuous reputation at all. Um, She is remembered for being independent, for thinking rules were a nice guideline to start from, almost. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the baseline. Let me exaggerate it just a little bit. She started to develop her sense of fashion. At this time, she would wear, you know, men's shirts and bow ties with long skirts to be a little different, to be a little more stylish. There was a flirtation with wearing a monocle one semester. Okay, I love the monocle. <laughs> That's funny. And she was also, you know, pushing those boundaries. She would, she, at one point she got her mother to write her a note so that she could get out of algebra class because math gave her the hives, according to the note. Well, and here's what's kind of sad is that they accepted that. I know. It reminds me of your math story, that you, your math teacher in high school. Oh, okay. I got to just tell this story. This is 1985, so it's not 1955, let me just say. So here I am in 10th grade trigonometry class, and the teacher, the first day of school, must be said he was an extraordinarily old man. So it, it's just his generation. I hold him no ill will or whatever, but he gets up the first day and says, guys, I teach all levels of math at this school, so I'll be with you through your whole career. Then his next sentence was, girls, this will be your last year of math, so try to keep up. And if you can't keep up, please try to be quiet. (laughs) So anyway, uh, yes, this whole dismissal of ladies need to take math is not restricted to the Oldfield Academy. No. So her senior year, Mr. Rosin died. And Wallace's mother was inconsolable. Wallace herself handled the funeral arrangements and her mother's grief. It was kind of a surprise to Wallace, I think, uh, to realize that her mother had actually loved Mr. Raza and she had thought it was more like a financial arrangement. Speaking Uh of that, unfortunately, uh, upon her return to school, she found out that Razin's trust fund was only for his lifetime. He had nothing to leave. And so Mama had had to give up the house and move to an apartment. It just made me so sad because once again, they need to rely on Uncle Saul and the Warfield money. Well, after Oldfields, there was never a thought of college, probably for nobody. Is that even a, is that a double negative? There was not a <laughs> um, Nice girls came out and then they got married. The end. Um, and Alice thought that this was possibly the most critical period in her daughter's life. Wallace was sent herself to deal with Uncle Saul, who gave her enough money to get started on a season. He gave her two crumpled up $10 bills to go buy a dress. <laughs> I mean, but he did, you know, fund the rest of it. But he was watching all those pennies. That's for sure. Well, we started with the prom at Princeton, to which a male cousin was pressured to take her, even though he had a girlfriend, and he rebelled. He's like, no, thank you. And he convinced a friend to take her instead, which is fine. Whatever. Who cares? She's at the Princeton prom, right? And good for her cousin for being like, you know what? I can't leave my girlfriend not going to the prom. I'm not going to do it. I'll find you an alternate. Well, she was (laughs) off, man. Luncheons and teas and dances and football games, seeing 
and being seen and in between at home with her mother, ripping apart and remaking her limited wardrobe, keeping up appearances. Everybody else had a new dress for every occasion, and so did she. But it was the same old stuff she just wore last time, only taken apart pretty in pink style and put back together. And again, if she had met Emily Post, they could have, like, designed dresses together. Yep. Seemed to be a thing. (laughs) Well, the big event was the main debutante ball in Baltimore called the Bachelor's Cotillion. And no matter how many debutantes applied to appear there, hundreds and hundreds, evidently, only 47 would get invitations. And the rest would cry into their champagne glasses, I guess. And hide and pretend they had something else to do. Well, it was very stressful waiting for that invitation, but it came... It came. Her name was pretty powerful, and she'd been to the right schools and knew the right people, etc. So the dress was made uh, after one that Irene Castle, a dancer, had worn, and the debutante was launched. Every one of the girls was expected to give her own ball, but Uncle Saul actually published in the newspaper, in the society pages, that he wasn't about to foot the bill for such a thing, which seems cruel. Like, fine, don't pay, but just let it go, you know? (laughs) Like... Yeah, make people think they weren't invited. Oh, he is something else. Okay, so Wallace had more bows than anyone. For a couple of years, she was really the belle of the ball. Here's a quote from one of her friends. She was so sophisticated that she made the rest of us feel a little bit like clumsy schoolgirls, which I think kind of came naturally, maybe, to her. No, I think so, too. I think the one thing that kind of worked in her favor is that uh, the U.S. entered World War One the year that she debuted. So... All of the balls that were notched down a little bit. The whole country was a little more serious. People were a little more cautious about where they were spending money. These are people that have a lot of money and there were still people spending it. But to say that you were making, you know, it's part of the war effort was probably an excuse she used. Uncle Saul actually put that in his little advertisement, too. Like, in these times of trouble, I think it's foolish to spend money on something so frivolous. So I guess she could use that as a legitimate excuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like blaming your parents when you don't want to go to that party because you know the police are going to come. Oh, my parents won't let me go. (laughs) Is that what it's like? I don't know. No, not really. (laughs) I I just sent my kid off to college. It's the only thing I can think of. (laughs) I was like, wow, I went to the wrong High school. I never had that scenario. Okay. All right. Oh, wait, you didn't? No. Seriously. That You ha- you mean the, the police coming and breaking up the keggers? No, I don't think I ever went to a party where there was a keg. No, I'm not talking a keg. I'm talking like 17 kegs. Oh, well, then no. <laughs> <laughs> there was an epic one at my high school graduation out at Bolton Stables. Oh, epic. All night long. <laughs> what was I doing with my time? You were... You know, in grade school. (laughs) I was going to say I was drinking vodka, but not in elementary school. No. (laughs) Um, Okay, so one of her mother's cousins finally took, uh, not pity. I don't don't think it's pity at all. I think one of her mother's cousins finally felt like, you know what? I'm going to do this. And she held this big, what they call a tea dance for her. Um, at last, in Washington, D.C., with no expense spared. I mean, everyone came from Baltimore and it was quite the occasion and it was a triumph. I mean, hooray. So then Grandma Warfield died and Baltimore, for her, became this place of family obligations, satisfactory behavior expected and stifling, kind of after her recent long-awaited triumph, until another of her mother's cousins invited her for what would turn out to be a fateful visit to Pensacola, Florida. This is probably a good place to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens in Pensacola, Florida.
So Wallace is in Florida at her cousin Corinne's house. Of course, the household includes the man of the house, her husband, Lieutenant Commander Mustin, and their three children. There's lots of beach going. This is the first era of the tropical tan being fashionable. Saturday nights out to dances at the San Carlos Hotel, where Wallace learned to tango. That sounds fun. Museums mm-hmm. and shopping. It's a true vacation. And sometimes Commander Mustin would bring some officers home to lunch with him. Probably his wife was like, can you please bring some dudes around? Some eligible yeah. young men. Like if you could bring so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, they might hit it off with Wallace. I'm sure she was playing matchmaker. Well, one day, the angels sang as she was introduced to one of these men at the family lunch to Wynne Spencer, who was a pilot for the Navy. What is a pilot exactly? Remember, this is 1916. So how many pilots can there even be in the universe? So remember how much of a lady magnet the Pan Am pilots were in Catch Me If You Can? Did you ever see that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio? Oh, yes. I loved it. Okay. So that's the 1960s. So now Mm -hmm. amplify that with the machismo of unreliable equipment and a new frontier. And they are nearly irresistible. (laughs) Oh, definitely. And Wynne, whose entire name was Earl Winfield Spencer. And Wynne is kind of, you know, cute and stylish, but his name was Earl Winfield Spencer. Just saying. Um, He was actually one of the first pilots to earn their wings in the Pensacola Air Base, which I believe still exists. Well, at the time, it was the only air base in the country. Mm -hmm. He was handsome and he had that allure of danger and sort of remote, which I think is always a red flag. He was playing it like he was medium interested. Yeah. Oh, he was playing her. There's no question about it. He knew how to manipulate people. Well, and he would lose his crap if she went out with anybody else, which I think is a giant red flag. (laughs) Yeah, but Wallace didn't see it that way. Well, two months of the back row at the movies and uh, long walks on the beach and I don't know what all. The first kiss on the veranda at the dance uh, (laughs) led to a proposal of marriage. This is two months after lunchtime. It didn't take long. He tried to teach her how to play golf and she tried to pretend to be interested in the game. So they were both, you know, kind of faking things going a long way here. That is a very good start to a relationship. That's what I think. (laughs) Well, her mother tried to talk her out of this. You know, the war is on. You'll probably be a young widow. Uh, Did that work with you, Alice? Did that work? That little argument? Maybe Alice had learned from her mistakes. And she didn't want the same future for her daughter. Well, and also, it's only been two months. And she said, for this, we sent you to the best school so you can live in temporary housing at a naval base with no money and no security. And then she (laughs) said, and the book says bitterly, I don't know if they were there listening. Uh, She says, Mama supposedly said, I suppose you'll get what you want. You always do. Poor Mama, whose own life, her love life too, had gone so wrong, so wrong. Well, she did get what she wanted, old Wallace, because after a spectacular but quick two-month round of parties for the new uh, engaged couple, Wallace Warfield was married to Wynne Spencer in a society wedding with six bridesmaids, an orchestra, and um, a shower of rose petals as they left. I mean, it was the real deal. She designed her own wedding dress and it was made of white velvet, which seems an unusual choice for a wedding dress, but it was stunning. She knew how to dress for her figure, which was very uh, flat. Angular. 
Okay, that's <laughs> yeah, she did have a lot of curves going on, <laughs> but she looked very stylish in her wedding gown. I have to tell you, the 20s and the 30s were the perfect time to be super angular. I mean, mm-hmm. those dresses with the bias cut and the drapery. I would look terrible in them, but she look, go look at uh, the Pinterest board because she knew how to wear clothes. So it was the first night of their honeymoon when the new Mrs. Spencer realized that her new husband had a serious drinking problem. Oh boy. Merry Christmas. <laughs> you know, he pulled out a flask because it was a dry resort, but he had that all planned. He knew that was going to be a problem, so he covered himself and they and started drinking. On base in Pensacola, the preparations for war were ramping up, and when was training new pilots? There was a crash almost every week. Think about how stressful that is. A plane would crash somewhere on base, and there'd be a bell, and you're forbidden from getting on the phone when you hear it. That's like a base rule. You must not get on the phone when that bell is ringing because it ties up the lines for people that needed to use them. And so here she is sitting there. Is he going to be dead? Is he going to be dead? And every wife was like, is it mine? Is it mine? Is it mine? And it never was. It never was. But this period of her life gave her a fear of flying so intense that she hardly ever took an airplane for the rest of her life unless pressed and probably medicated. Well, he was sure showing her how to medicate. Well, he was under a lot of pressure because all these new pilots were his responsibility. And he started coming home drunk almost every night. And if you think about it, you know, if you lose a student in that way almost every week, I guess that is that is stressful. I don't mean to make light of his work. By day, he was single-handedly creating a large part of the U.S. Air Force or airborne war effort. It wasn't the Air Force. But so he got a promotion to Boston. He continued to drink and built something magical. And then to California. Another promotion in quick succession, again, where she didn't know very many people. But she kind of got over that. Wallace was always an expert. She was very skilled at getting the names of connections. You know, so-and-so told me to look you up. She kept track of them all. I can't imagine how big that, like, now we have it all on our phones, right? Right. (laughs) Should she haul in, like, this big Rolodex around, this big old-fashioned spinny Rolodex? I don't know. This is how she built her life, you know, how she built her social circles. They were moving around quite a bit and having introductions to people in society that were at the place she was going only led to more introductions. That's what she was doing with her time in addition to trying to learn to cook from the Fanny Farmer cookbook. <laughs> I think it's funny that she used to take that book to the butcher shop to show the guy how to cut meat. And I'm like, he right. probably knows, but okay. And she had to micromanage it. They, you know, She wanted all the portions to be exactly the same size so nobody would feel weird when they came to the buffet. People just don't think that much about the buffet. I'm here to tell you as the wife of a wedding caterer, it's like, oh, look, a big spoon of whatever. (laughs) Nobody's examining for the biggest piece of chicken. I don't think. I guess I'm not there all the time. So even though he himself was training hundreds of men to go fight, Wynn was ashamed kind of of himself, I guess, and angry that he wasn't being sent to Europe. He just couldn't comprehend that he was more help making a hundred guys to go than going himself like Mm -hmm. 99 times more valuable but he just became i guess sulky like he would take it all out on wallace he wouldn't talk to her for days at a time and here's his new wife left mostly to herself all day mostly to her social endeavors but i i think she'd rather hang out with her husband but he didn't give her that option but especially after the war when he didn't have as many responsibilities wallace and win would attend social events together when's the commander of their base 
you know, even though all he wanted to do was empty his flask, he couldn't avoid those kind of social obligations. She made him look good, but I don't know that he ever actually acknowledged that. No, and he found a way to make sure that his wife would be on edge. Like, he'd say something to her right before they went in the room. And (laughs) he wanted to make her be nervous about what he was going to say and how he was going to act. And his whole goal, I guess, is... To make sure she didn't have any fun. He'd accuse her of flirting and of disrespecting him in front of people. And often he would just abandon her at the party or whatever. Like for days. Just leave. Take the car and go. So she'd have to ask for a ride home. And everyone on the base knew was the thing. You know, uh, you can smile and you can keep up appearances. Whatever you can. And your friends aren't going to say anything to your face. Because everybody's well brought up, right? But your home life is the subject of gossip. And I have to say, from here, get used to that, sister. Um, (laughs) But Yeah, it lasts a long time. (laughs) But it was so painful for her at this time and good training for later, but so sad. And then it escalated again. He would lock her in the bathroom and leave the house for hours at a time. Um, smash things while yelling at her and so much drinking. So much drinking. Well, the next year or so got so much worse. Physical violence, throwing furniture at her. You've gone beyond, right? We can all agree this is not a red flag anymore. Mm -hmm. Accusing her of conspiring with his bosses to make his life hard at work, which is ridiculous. When she went to her mother and then her uncle Saul to tell them she was going to file for a divorce... The responses were, how dare you bring this disgrace upon us? Listen to that. They would rather rather she get abused than divorced. Right. They thought she was being dramatic and it can't be that bad. You don't want to disgrace the family. And Uncle Saul's like, I'm going to cut you out of my will. Yeah, there were firm warnings that no one in the entire family would help her financially if she went through with it. And Mm -hmm. think how desperate this is. If you're in this situation and the only people that can help you think you're the crazy one, she's like, I'm not going back to him. So you know what, mother, you say all you have is a sofa. I'm going to sleep on that sofa. And how about not worrying about emotional support or anything? Obviously, you're not going to give it to me. So she did. She took up a space in that tiny living room of her mother's house. Um, She had to work now, Mama did, as a hostess at the Chevy Chase Club in Washington, D.C. She was working for a wage. You know, but she was able to pay her bills and she didn't have to go crawling to Uncle Saul every time. So that might have felt good. I don't know. It might have felt desperate. She hadn't been brought up to it at all. That's the thing. So when, from a distance, he'd been sent to Hong Kong, the further the better, I say, Mm -hmm. uh, sent her money every month at least. And with him gone, Wallace began to go out. And she knew quite a lot of people here in Washington and soon kind of had friend of a friend at herself into the highest of society. And it was at one embassy ball. We're at an embassy ball. That's where we are. (laughs) She met a diplomat from Argentina who was a junior ambassador named Felipe. Felipe Espil. (laughs) He's so exotic. I don't have a picture of him, but I picture a young Desi Arnaz. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he soon became her known escort, companion, and tutor into the finer things of life around town. And Wallace really thought, she really genuinely thought that they were on track to be married once she was free of win. Like, whoa, 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 said Espiel. Not so fast. This is... This is not at all that. No, 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 no. Uh, sorry, I gave you that impression. You know, Wallace realized that it was just because she was married that this had even started in the first place. A delightful interlude, he thought, 
Whereas she had thought this was her freaking salvation. Mm -hmm. It was a horrible blow to her. And as much as we've been led to see her as calculating, etc., it seems so innocent to me, sort of. Like, I found a life raft. This person makes me feel beautiful and happy, and he and I will be married, and this mistake will be fixed. Do you know what I mean? It's not like she set out to trap him. No, no, not at all. And I, but I always think it's interesting that for a woman who was raised to learn about societal expectations and, you know, keeping up the family appearances and all that, that she would think that divorcing her husband and marrying this guy that she was dating while she was married would fly. I think she felt secure enough in her position in Washington, D.C. Like maybe it was a little naivete. Yeah. Well, she was very determined and she was very confident. So if that's the plan that came up in her head. Yeah. Fortunately, fortunately, I can't believe this sentence is about to come out of my mouth. Fortunately, her cousin Corinne, who she'd gone to visit in Pensacola, her husband died. Huh. <laughs> I know it's, it's very sad. Um, you know, what kind of surprised me in her story is her relationship with her cousins. Even as a child, she would you know, go with them on vacations. So yeah. she had this a larger family that she was involved in um, that we don't usually hear too much about her. We think of her as being like this lone wolf, and that wasn't the case at all. But Corinne decided that um, she wanted to go to Paris, and would Wallace like to go with her? And Note to self, find influential cousins who want to travel and pay my way. <laughs> Note to self. That's right. <laughs> when she came back from this vac vacation, excursion, whatever, um, Wynne had sent her a pile of letters. He wasn't drinking anymore. He wanted her back. He'd given her all this thought. I miss you. I'm sorry. Please come back to me. Come live in China with me. And like, what are you going to, you know, what are you going to do? She agreed to go. Uh, word is she may have also been entrusted with some official papers to carry pointed to later is like she was a spy that was a very common scenario and her husband had been the commander of a base the commander's wife is certainly trustworthy to carry papers in her luggage across the ocean that was not <laughs> wallace meeting someone at perkins and getting a briefcase you know <laughs> in the parking lot behind the dumpster <laughs> i know or like it wasn't even like josephine baker you know transporting the documents written in invisible ink in her bra <laughs> she did go and it took six weeks to get there she said it was a slow boat to china and it literally was a slow boat to china it was literally yeah so when met her after her long trip and the first thing he says is he's bragging that he hasn't had a drop to drink since he'd heard she was coming which of course fell apart almost immediately almost immediately a quote kidney infection from the bad water caused her to have to seek help from a doctor. And the word is that evidently Wynne had kicked her so hard in the abdomen that she was bleeding internally. So, of course, we're going to say out loud that it's a kidney infection. Of course, of course, he's all, forgive me, forgive me. But as soon as she recovered, she told Wynne she was filing for divorce and all bets were off. And now he would hit her in public and embarrass her and um, insult her and laugh. He just became... A super winner. And I want to tell you, this is not, hmm, this is not a part for children. I think this whole, I don't know, maybe next five, ten minutes, <laughs> I don't think children, I, I think removal from the room of the under 18s is called for here. Or, you know, turn the volume down for a little while, come back later. But get this. I'm just, I hope all the kids are out of the room. Cover your ears, kids, if you're still here. So either Wynn dragged her to brothels, 
making her watch all his action under threat of killing her in her sleep. She fled to friends and took care to keep away from Wen, you know, with a friend from the Pensacola days who was in China. Or Wallace visited these places willingly, undergoing a course of specialized training in erotic massage, among other things, uh, where she became a prostitute herself for both men and women. Uh, what? Where, where did that come from? You asked that last thing. Wait, I did not expect that swerve. No. Where did it come from? It came from the British Intelligence Service later in the 1930s, 11 years after this. A report on Wallace that was commissioned by the prime minister to see what the Prince of Wales's girlfriend had been up to. And you know what? I absolutely buy that you'd want to investigate someone. You might one day end up, you know, being your queen. But this quote, China dossier, as this report was called, no one's ever seen it themselves. It's my cousin's friend saw it, or I've heard it exists, or people I know say she was selling drugs. I mean, I guess heroin, opium, and gambling, and sleeping with the Chinese general, and posing for nudie pictures. The whole thing is so confusing to me. And it is here that I want to say that fully half of the biographies that I have read sort of gleefully talk of blackmail and boyfriends and botched abortions and spying and when's really gay. And I don't know what all I'm just like, I do not know. Like everything possible is being thrown at the wall in hopes mm -hmm. that something will stick, I guess. Release the dossier then. Where is it? I refuse to accept any of this until it is public domain. Right. And even then, however, the purpose of that dossier wasn't to find that uh, Wallace had this sparkling past. It was to make her look bad. So any little teeny tiny nugget of um, that they could spin with their imagination into something bigger, like maybe she walked by these massage parlors, which she would have because she's in this exotic city and they're there. But Oh, here she was. I did see her walking by there. Oh, that must have mean that she was going to take these lessons and learn the art of love. And <laughs> Well, and I just think like her friend said that Wen used to drag her there on pain of a beating, which actually sounds more like the narrative that we've had so far. Yeah, that one I that one I believe I can't even step into believing that she did all this on her own. Like, well, other books say if not more truthfully, because honestly, who knows, but at least more logically that Wallace kind of skates over this period in her memoirs a little bit. So she hints at travel and flirtations. I mean, can't a person just have a simple affair if she wants to without all of this other stuff being dragged in? I almost think her biggest crime was not keeping up appearances, I guess, like being careful to have someone with you, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, to prevent talk. But I mean, how were you supposed to know that all this talk was going to happen later? You're just living your life. And, uh, you know, maybe she did have a lover. But, you know, how many people in their 20s and 30s have a boyfriend or met someone right. at the club? It's not like an unheard of, crazy, bizarre thing to happen. It's just why does this all have to be? I don't know. Well, you could also spin somebody's husband is taking you out for lunch. And that suddenly becomes an affair no it's just a meal so geez who knows you know what nobody knows and anyone who tells you definitively is pulling your leg that's yeah. all i'm saying poor old wallace well this expose made up or not is all in the future so for now let's go back to good old 1926 <laughs> which is actually not that good because she had two bouts of 
how shall I say, intestinal bad health in two different cities, a month in Shanghai and one in Seattle, which for the gleeful gossips are going to paint as an abortion that left her infertile. So during a stay back at her mother's house in D.C., she learned that Virginia, the state of Virginia, had a liberal divorce law. And if she could prove that Wynne had, quote, deserted her for three years and she had been living in the state for a year, she could get a divorce. So Wynne provided her with a backdated statement, two years backdated, that he chose not to live with her ever again. And so Wallace set up house in a residential hotel in Virginia to await her paperwork. And I guess... Read a lot of books. Having that information and having read them gave her a lot of fodder for cocktail talk, right? Oh, I guess that's true. Well, until, and then we need, here's what we need. We need a fateful event sound effect. So maybe (laughs) I'll add that in post, like a thunder sound or electricity. We'll have to think what it could be. (laughs) Hold on, I've got a lelly waiter. Uh, If you guys ever hear a bunch of elevators, I'm sitting here in public (laughs) in front of a glass window right in front of a pretty major elevator at the Central Library. (laughs) And I feel a bit like a little monkey in a zoo because everybody's looking at me. Sometimes they back up and look again at me. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Um, So if you hear an elevator, I don't know what to do about that. It's right outside the door. Um, No one has banged on the door yet. So that's the best I could hope for. I wish this was live. If somebody came up here with a cup of coffee for me, I'd let them in and let them sit in my little little chair here. Or if they just waved a history chick's flask outside the window, would that work? Uh, I think that would get you the express. You could sit in my chair. You could talk about podcast. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. I have to say, if you're ever in Kansas City, you should definitely go to that library. It is so cool. I take my out-of-town visitors there. Yeah, it's an old uh, bank, right? And they rehabbed it into a library, but they kept a lot of the architectural elements, marble floors and gilt and all. It's so fancy. It just feels like important to be in that library. (laughs) Yes, I feel super important in this class. Hi. Hi. (laughs) I got another person. I'm always getting smiled at. I think it's because I have this microphone with this giant green thing like a Muppet on it. (laughs) It's pretty clear I'm doing something, but nobody knows what. Okay, so anyway, let's go back to this. <laughs> let's go back to Wallace. Well, I don't know. Okay, I don't know if you remember Mary Kirk from high school, Mary of the silversmithing fortune. Well, she's not Mary Kirk anymore. Now she's Mary Raffray of New York, and Wallace was invited to spend Christmas with them. She had turned 30 that year. Hooray. Um, Mary introduced her to a couple she knew named Ernest and Dorothea Simpson. And at first she hung out with both the Simpsons, but after a bit of time, it became just Ernest that she'd meet up with. And Ernest was tall and he was handsome. He was very well dressed. He was intelligent and sophisticated. He loved to go and show Wallace all the art at galleries and museums and then take her out to a fashionable lunch. And Dorothea, the the wife, um, Dorothea was like, oh, no, uh, this isn't working at all. (laughs) She saw it. I, I I don't think she was surprised. You know what he, you know who he looks like to me is a handsomer version of the muggle from Fantastic Beasts. Okay, I can see it. My marriage is in trouble, he said. Don't worry, it's not important that I'm married. And they also had a child. It's like, you know, <laughs> A, they always say that. It could have been true, but still. Then he said, won't you marry me when we're both free? <laughs> First, Ernest was divorced, and then Wallace's came through, and he asked her again. And she said to her mother, which seems so subtly 
to me, I guess, what are you going to do? I'm very fond of him and he's kind, which will be a contrast. She said, I really feel tired of fighting the world alone and with no money. It's not really a love match, you might say, but still, their senses of humor matched. He was half British, half American, so he was super interesting and exotic. In fact, he had become a British citizen so he could fight on that side in World War I. He dropped out of Harvard to do that. So, so he had enough money so she didn't have to scrimp and worry anymore. And I can see the allure of that. And, and it was genuine companionship and they liked being in each other's company. And so really, that is probably at this time and, and any time, maybe a really good basis for a successful marriage. Yeah, I think he loved her. Yeah. I I, I mean, I, I think she liked him a lot, was very fond of him. Um, like a lot, a lot. Yeah, but she is, like, emotionally damaged. Her entire life didn't prepare her to be a loving, warm, fuzzy woman. You know, it taught her to, that she's going to have to scheme a little bit. She's going to have to always try and get think out for herself first. And that's not really a good way to enter a marriage either. But um, I think they worked very well together. And I, But I think the love was on his side. Right. I think those trust issues just never faded when was a monster he was a monster and mm -hmm. so i don't blame her no i don't either and those wounds they don't ever heal you're left with scars and physical and emotional and so they were married not in a fancy ceremony um that's okay though but after a first year of being kind of on the fringes of things they kind of had a house not in the right neighborhood and she called out a place and awkward wallace decided to take things in hand and i guess what we'd say now is no work toward her goal of creating a circle of friends again and uh, being a part of things. And so when she was determined, she just made a plan. They moved to five Bryanston courts, which just sold for six million pounds, by the way. <laughs> she had a cook and a valet and a lady's maid and housemaids and a chauffeur. And soon she has worked up to hosting and being hosted by titled aristocracy and diplomats and other society hostesses. Yeah, she was really making a name for herself as a as a hostess because her parties were different. She brought her American aesthetic to them and her creativity and they were unique because only Wallace Simpson could throw that party. And she would call her cocktails KTs, but um, she would shake her cocktails and make a big dramatic show of it and have these exotic, weird combinations of American and posh foods on the buffet and just, you know, make sure everybody was mingling and everyone was having a good time. And they were. And so once that word got out, that's whew, shot her right up in, you know, the hostessing echelon. Her house became quite the place to be. All right. Well, I think it's time to take a little break now that Wallace is finally on top. And when we come back, we'll see if there is going to be another fateful event sound effect in Wallace's future.
are back. Society hostess extraordinaire Wallace on top of her game. Hooray. <laughs> One of Wallace's friends, an American named Consuelo Morgan Thaw, who I would guess was named after one of our two previous Consuelos, Vanderbilt or Isnaga. See episode nine. Uh, anyway, my dear, my sister's hosting a hunting party and asked us to go as chaperones, which I, we got to kind of explain this because Consuelo's sister, Lady Thelma Furness, was married, but that's not who she was going to be there with. Aha. So thus, you need a chaperone. Maybe this was Wallace's mistake in China. Remember I said a nod to appearances sometimes covers a lot of sins. So, Wallace is the cover for a lot of sins. Let's just put it that way. So, Wallace, we cannot go. My husband's mother has fallen ill. We need another married couple. Can I count on you? The Prince of Wales will be there. I, 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 I. Wallace was sort of petrified. Like, no freaking way have I reached level five on this thing. Um, the social climbing, I am not there yet. I mean, I sort of know your sister, Lady Furness, but... The Prince of Wales. It's like she broke out in a cold sweat. <laughs> like, oh, no, I don't know. And they persuaded her, though, Lady Furness and Consuelo. And on the way out there on the train, she asked to be shown how to curtsy to a member of the royal family. And her friend just laughed like, you're American. You don't have to curtsy. And she's like, I swear to God, if you don't show me this instant, I am going to throw myself off this train. Okay, dang. Like, everyone's <laughs> laughing. Here's how you curtsy if it's that important to you. God, dang. Her husband was British, and this was her adopted country. So I can kind of see. Plus, she was really nervous. And, you know, you know how your mind spins, right? I know. Poor old Wallace. She'd had stress headaches and had worked herself up into a major cold by the weekend, but it went really well. It went really well. People loved The Simpsons, even the prince, who was known for liking Americans. Anyway, as he was currently sleeping with two of them that were married. Including Lady Thelma Furness. Yeah, they were a thing. He liked his American married women. They were probably very safe for him. And so there is an apocryphal story about central heating that I just really want to say, although everyone says it didn't happen because she was A, too nervous and B, too well brought up to start in on him like this. And so purportedly, the prince opens up his conversation with, I imagine you miss central heating out here in the country. And she is supposed to have said, I'd expected something more original from the Prince of Wales, which was supposed to have delighted him with her brashness and bravery. And evidently that never happened. But I bet she did say some brash and brave things because that's her kind of her personality. Yeah, maybe it took a couple cocktails in, though, because she was pretty dang nervous. Yeah, but definitely. really, it did. It went OK. Her first real country house hobnobbery with the official knobs was good. And Thelma had really appreciated the uh, last minuteness, and they started hanging out a little bit more. And since Lady Furness was the prince's mistress, which was a pretty open situation, which seemed to be okay with every human on earth, except for Thelma's husband, Marmaduke. <laughs> Sorry. I shouldn't laugh. That's like an old established name. <laughs> that is a name that has a zero chance of making it to the preschool backpack hook rack these days. I mean, prove me wrong. Send me a picture of Marmaduke in preschool. I, man, I don't know. <laughs> At least you could call him Marmaduke Duke. Oh, that's true. Which is kind of cool, I guess. Although a little confusing if you're running with the title of aristocracy, but 
So be it. So Wallace is now, as we say, level five social climbing. She was actually presented at court to the king and queen. Yes. With the feathers on her hair and the white dress. And you can bet she took lessons on this curtsy because it's more of a big deal. Now, see, according to British law, she had become a British subject upon her marriage. And luckily, the rules had loosened up. It used to be if you were a divorced person, you could just forget it. Well, now, as long as you could prove that you were the, quote, innocent party, that's fine. Okay. Welcome. Bienvenidos. <laughs> and Wallace had that handy dandy note from Wynne that had gotten her the divorce in the first place that said, basically, I myself choose to never live with you again. I'm the one who leaves, blah, blah, blah. Proof enough for the committee. And um, this actually did happen. I actually do love this little brash statement. While people were walking around and doing their thing, the Prince of Wales said to one of his companions, something ought to be done about these lights. They're making the women look ghastly. Well, later, he complimented Wallace's dress. And she had the most Elizabeth Bennet moment of all time. She said, but sir, I understand that you think we all look ghastly. (laughs) (laughs) See, it's comments like that. She was making them back on the hunting weekend. I'm telling you. Well, she made the boy blush. That's all that you need. Well, Thelma kept inviting them places over the next few years. And of course, often, including the Prince of Wales and the Simpsons were soon in the prince's inner circle. Isn't that amazing for these two middle class people to be swept up into this world? I mean, the prince even threw her a surprise 37th birthday party. That's a big deal. Hmm. Now, old Thelma was headed back to her hometown to old New York City, to help out her twin sister, Gloria Vanderbilt, with an ugly custody battle over her daughter, little Gloria Vanderbilt. That's the one you're thinking of, little Gloria. (laughs) Pink jeans with a swan on your butt, still my heart, and a gold stretchy belt. You're talking about little Gloria Vanderbilt. So Thelma asked Wallace to keep an eye on the prince while she was gone and left. Oh, sister. You just left a mistress-shaped hole in a very lonely man's life. Maybe we should talk about this man right now. Let's let's call him David because his close friends did, Wales, and his family did. They couldn't call him by his full name. His full name was Edward Albert Christian George Andrew Patrick David. Yeah, it's probably best just to stay with one, isn't it? He was born the oldest of the six children of George V and Mary of Tech. And I keep reading that his parents were affectionate, but I do not see it. Maybe it was by the standards of the day. Literally, it took them three whole years to discover that the nanny was pinching him every time he was brought in for the children's hour. You know, that one hour a day that parents would see their children, clean children, sort of tired children. Perfect. Um... That same nanny that used to pinch him right before he went in so he would be grumpy and the parents would send him out to her again, was purposely starving his next younger brother for three years. Yeah, that's not really affectionate. That's not even the standard of the time. Yeah, I don't think so. I think everybody was afraid of their dad and not that into talking to their mother. So anyway, he became Prince of Wales at 16. And he served in World War I, though no one would let him anywhere near the danger to which he is supposed to have said, my father has three more sons. Who cares what happens to me? (laughs) So the affection wasn't there anyway. Like he assumed I am a cog in this machine. I don't know that anyone's going to give one crap. Can you please just let me be a man? Nope, they wouldn't. They would not. They would not. As a young man, 
he became quite popular among the working classes because he traveled through impoverished areas and seemed genuinely concerned for them. He listened. I think that's so critical. He was a popular member of the royal family, though they themselves saw him as sort of a loose cannon who wouldn't toe the line. You know, he was also given the hairy eyeball for all of his capering around with married women and his generally kind of breezy attitude toward tradition and um, basically kingship worried his parents exceptionally much. Yeah, there was like two faces to him because the people just adored him because he did what the other rulers did not do. And he met with them. Um, There's that other side of people who know him and know what his responsibilities are supposed to be and seriously question his ability to do it. I know, I know. And they're not going to let him change anything. Uh, You know, I just don't think people i.e. princes next in line, were given any kind of proper training. Like, they were just kind of thrown in. Like, the the rulers didn't want to have an assistant. If it was me, I would be like, please take all this over. One last thing. (laughs) But, like, they seem to not want that to happen. Well, maybe history speaks to that reason. (laughs) You know, that's, like, a good way to uh, leave your job (laughs) that you only have until you die. Oh, I guess that's true. Surely we're beyond that in the 1930s, but maybe not. Okay. So, um, so now it begins. The Simpsons and the Prince were best friends forever. And, um, this is what Wallace wrote back to her Aunt Bessie on the occasion of Ms. Furness's abandonment. We've inherited the young man from Thelma. He misses her. He's always calling us up and the result is one late night after another. And by late, I mean 4 a.m. Ernest has cried off a few, but I have had to go on. I'm sure the gossip will now be I'm the latest. It's all gossip about the prince. I'm not in the habit of taking my girlfriend's bows. I'm the comedy relief and we like to dance together, but I always have Ernest hanging around my neck. So we're all safe. Well, that's a little whitewashing of it, isn't it? Yeah, because honestly, Thelma was out. The backup lady, Frida Ward, also American and married, gone. Mm -hmm. Ernest Simpson was no fool. You know the prince isn't coming to your house to see you, the muggle. (laughs) yeah at the beginning he was like this is very exciting you know let's ride this as long as we possibly can you know hanging out with this circle of in society this is really cool and then he's like well wait what and he's kind of backing off he's got a lot of problems at work the shipbuilding business or the ship brokering business is not as busy as it always has been he's losing money um, he's got pressures there and this is just like, okay, I got too much going on. I'm going to back away from this. Cause that's just a lot to deal with that. I have to fight for my wife from the future King of England. Yeah. What a weird position to be in, right? Like historically, mm-hmm. I guess, strangely, it's an honor. I'm putting a big question mark around yeah. the honor to have your wife favored by the King. I mean, you know, he's the future king. But evidently, Wallace had reassured him that she wanted to stay married. Like, both hymns. Ernest and the prince. I do want to stay married to Ernest. I mean, he was... Ernest was now in the inner circle, but I just, like, how embarrassing. Although everyone was kind of used to it. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It was was an old tradition. So... I just don't Why mess with tradition, Beckett? So, meanwhile, Wallace is so in charge at the prince's houses... That one long-term butler was fired for not obeying her. I mean, this is no joke. The 
royal florist. Wallace had called to request something specific, and the florist called and said, do you have some new housekeeper named Mrs. Simpson? And the person on the other end of the line is like, let's just put it this way. Orders from Mrs. Simpson should be followed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what? If it works for everybody, I guess let's just keep going. Sounds except fun. For the, except for the fired guy. Except for the fired guy. That doesn't <laughs> sound fun at all. Well, everyone yeah. else learned their lesson, I guess. That was an education in, oh, I guess. Okay. So both Simpsons got catapulted right on up there in society. They were guests at Prince George's wedding, the youngest brother in the family. <laughs> what? I Okay. You know, the king and queen objected. They, they saw the name. They took the name off. Um, there was a state ball ahead of the wedding. They're like, these people are not coming to the state ball. They're not coming to the wedding. And Wallace's boyfriend, the heir to the throne, told his father, then I'm not going to the state ball. Then I'm not going to his wedding. And then you can explain that. And also, besides, it's really good for American and British relations for us to be accommodating to this American. <laughs> Which was fooling nobody, but I guess that's a good excuse. Okay. Yeah, sure. So I don't know if this is tone deaf or what. Wallace was loving her glamorous new lifestyle, even to her husband's face. She called herself Wallace in Wonderland. (laughs) And I really just see this whole season of her life, I guess, she saw it as this amazing but temporary temporary Mm -hmm. visit to the other side of the mirror, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. lifestyle. But I think for David, the Prince of Wales, um, (laughs) now that we know him better, let's just call him David. Um, I think for him, it was true love. And it's not Mm -hmm. some China dossier magic massage trick, right? I mean, just uh, so many books want to make this weird and inhuman and strange. I mean, you'll read any number of theories that are more lurid than the next about how could someone so ugly keep him interested? It must be brothel education. It's like, God dang. And then that's when they start talking about her looks is being unattractive and her voice is being brash and her manners rude and her background is from nothing. This is really the time in her life when all that is starting to get out there. And like, you know, when you step on some bubble gum on a hot sidewalk and you scrape it off on your foot and you get it mostly off, there's always just a little pit that sticks and that's going to stick. It's going to stick with her forever. My theory is that David was nothing more or less than a very lonely man deep inside. You're really raised not to trust that many people. I think uh, he and his brothers say, you know, what are people wanting from you? That's always got to be in the back of your mind. So she was a Southern raised woman, taught the arts of what flattery and drawing out of conversation by being a good listener. Um, She was interested or pretended to be. I don't know. I don't think it matters in his work. I think it was genuine. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's the head you have to get to, not the, the pee-pee. You know what I mean? <laughs> and was anyone there but them? No. So what, I don't know. What What is all this talk about? Like, oh, well, it must be these exotic tricks of China. I don't think so. I just no. don't think so. He was 40. He was older. And this is really the first time he'd ever fallen in love. So he's going to fall hard. Well, I take that. He's fallen in love, but not like this kind of adult love. Well, it was a strange balancing act between Ernest and David anyway, as you might guess. And Wallace just went too far once 
She went on an extended ski vacation without Ernest with the prince after her husband specifically and seriously asked her not to. Like, please, please, this one thing is all I ask. I don't fight many battles. I would just really prefer if you didn't go on this one. I feel humiliated. I'm feeling small. I need you to kind of stand by me. And she tossed her head and went anyway. And I think that's what tipped the scale. I really do. Mm -hmm. Um, The excitement and the glitter had gotten to her mind. I mean, there's famous people everywhere. There's parties. There's exotic locations and unlimited money. Mm -hmm. The, The people who inhabited this level of society were aware of the relationship. And mostly they disapproved at the beginning. But some society hostesses sort of took her in hand, I guess I'm going to say. She had her art friend, her music friend. One lady, pretty well my fair ladyed her overnight, kind of in fashion and party planning and who's who and who's cousins with who and married to who and sleeping with who and blah, blah, blah. That's important knowledge. And last but not least, and I cannot remember exactly how much we talked about her in the Gilded Age Heiresses podcast, but yet another American, Emerald, Lady Cunard, formerly Miss Maud Burke of San Francisco and New York, was her political friend. Her gatherings were controversial at worst, uh, simply lively political debates at best. And again, this is like one of those uh, parts of his double faceted life. He's being courted by Hitler. Uh, In a nutshell, Edward was German. He spoke German fluently. He considered it his mother language. He had seen a part of his family, the Romanovs, murdered by communists. He hated Russia. Okay. And I guess all other things being equal, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Germany, which he considered his homeland, was between them and Russia. They could provide help to keep the communists away from England. And and David liked that. He thought that a relationship with Hitler and his buddies was going to be the best thing for England. It's an alliance between the two of them, which, oh, no, they're Nazis. It was here that Wallace met Mr. Von Ribbentrop, special envoy from Mr. Hitler over in Germany. Now, if we're going to assign blame at all to a woman, which I think we shouldn't, we should probably blame Emerald Cunard for bringing David into the orbit of this Nazi anyway. If we're assigning this sort of blame to a woman, hmm. there are assertions that not only did Wallace sleep with Von Ribbentrop, the rumor of which is enough, by the way, to prevent her house getting one of those little blue oval historical markers. Did you know that? No, actually, I didn't. Just the rumor of this relationship with Von Ribbentrop, which has never been proven. I mean, Mm -mm. they're called blue plaques or English heritage plaques. Charlie Chaplin has one. Benjamin Franklin has one. Jimi Hendrix has one. But not Wallace Simpson. And interesting. (laughs) Well, um, so not only that, that she was sleeping with the enemy, literally, but that Hitler and his organization had paid her to influence David toward their cause. You know what? The fact is, Jack, David was already there. And Hitler also had been working on David for years. Think about all these German cousins. His family tree is full of Germans because that's where you go if you need a prince or a princess to marry your royalty. All those little principalities of Germany. That's the Mm -hmm. shopping mart for a bride, right? And this man had so many German cousins that had been sent to England specifically for the purpose of feeding him a line of thought and reporting back. 
also, and he was not alone, by the way, he had admired the social reforms and the economic reforms of the Nazis. And the time is past now for us to think that it's only the rosy side that anyone was seeing. It was very clear that Hitler wanted to rid Germany of all Jews. It was very clear that he wanted to expand his territory. And David was known to be anti-Semitic. Many upper-class people in Britain were. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. And before this week, I didn't think I was going to have to explain that Nazis are bad guys. <laughs> uh, I thought that was a given. Like, you're supposed to be shocked when I say that the future king of England was a Nazi sympathizer. That was supposed to make you appalled and shocked. You were supposed to understand exactly what that meant. Their platform... Yeah is totalitarian government, anti-Semitism, Aryan supremacy, uber-nationalism, anti-liberalism, anti-democracy, and territorial expansion at any price. Hitler had also killed his political enemies by now in 1934, which was not a secret, which was out there. We are past pretending we don't know now. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. <laughs> So I don't even want to go into this anymore as books have been written about this subject. I'm just going to recommend a book called 17 Carnations uh, by Andrew Morton, mm -hmm. which talks really just about David and Wallace to a lesser extent and their relationship with Nazis and Nazi Germany. All I'm going to say is to say Wallace caused it is ridiculous. You know, did she agree with it? I'm not even sure it matters. No, she no. But she didn't create David's pro-Nazi stance. If anything, he got that from his father, who was at least determined to stay on good terms with Germany and avoid another war at any cost. Pro-German, I must say, not pro-Nazi, at least when it came to George V. That's where they are right now. Woo! <laughs> um, I want to get back to garden variety level scandal. Okay, can we please? Oh. Yes, please. <laughs> Because like, this is pick really one. too much for me. Um, Wallace had asked her old friend, Mary Kirk, to watch over Ernest while he was in New York. Have we not learned what this cause is? Well, Mary watched all of Ernest, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I love how Mary is all, all in this story. You know what? Yes. Uh, I mean, from the beginning. And uh, yeah, she just keeps popping up. I kind of like it. So nothing about the relationship of Wallace and David were appearing in the British papers. It was kind of a gentleman's agreement. But everyone who was anyone saw Wallace dripping with jewelry, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of jewelry presented to her by her boyfriend. Um, she's now chic in her simply cut dresses. She now holds a room as if she was a princess. Her poise, her, what do you even call it? She has really... Um, become what she had only dreamed about becoming. You know, she was a personage at this point. Mm -hmm. And the royal family was kind of alarmed at what they saw as something potentially damaging. This isn't like the other ones. They, they saw this as serious. And that's when they started surveillance of Wallace and investigating her and digging up the dirt. They wanted to see what they were dealing with. King George V began to decline. Um, he had some lung trouble also, I think it's all these cigars, is what I was guessing. Um, and David was there when his father slipped into a coma and was euthanized by his doctor at 11.55 so the notice would get into the right papers. Yes, you heard me. <laughs> these people are cold. <laughs> yes, but they were affectionate parents. 
<laughs> I think that's funny because if they'd waited till after midnight, um, they would miss the deadline for the good newspapers. I Man. So David was now, from the moment his father took his last breath, nothing else being necessary, he was now King Edward VIII. And so he invited Wallace to come see the proclamation and the heralds go to different parts of the city, read out um, a statement, which there is a video of that I um, will link you to. You can actually listen to the statement, although they just show the heralds at the first three locations and then the fourth one, you get to hear the whole proclamation. So don't think the movie's been, I mean, it's been cut up weird because they didn't want you to hear the thing four times, but Wallace and the king watched the proclamation from a window together. I do believe that Wallace thought this was the end. We're wrapping it up. You know, this can't go on any further. He's the king um, of England. He's got to marry a princess. They've got to have an heir. Um, Everyone thought, okay, this is where it ends. But alas, Edward, the king of England, had some other plans. And this is probably a good time to stop. For this episode we're going to break this one into two parts but we're going to release the second earlier than you know three weeks from now Woo! I know. quite a roller coaster it is there's i mean so much going on and we'll, we'll kind of sum it up at the beginning of the next part of all the players and what's going on but um it's getting very muddy over there in england <laughs> okay we'll be back soon thanks for listening bye If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends about us or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, the entity formerly known as iTunes. You can interact with Susan and I in assorted combinations on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to check out the Pinterest board where there are many, many pictures of the fashionable Miss Simpson. She was a very photographed woman. We would like to say a special thanks to Ryan Kirkendall for all of her love and support. We salute you. And thanks also to James Harper for his musical expertise. You can download his music at bandcamp.harperactive.com.
ever since that commercial that Gatorade had where it's like all the dudes are sweating Gatorade, you know Gatorade's <laughs> a little salty. I was just like, I can't stop gagging. 